We'll hear argument next in Case 10-1472, Kuichi Taniguchi versus Can Pacific Saipan Limited. Mr. Freed. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, our brief lists, lists six categories of authorities demonstrating that the work of an interpreter under 28 U.S.C. Section 1920, Paren 6, is limited to spoken communication. Primary among these is the Court Interpreters Act itself, whose central provisions afford simultaneous or consecutive spoken interpreter services. When the Could same I make sure that I understand the extent of your argument? Are you saying that it's interpretation, oral interpretation, just in the courtroom? Well, you're right, Justice Sotomayor, I think that it's a — that there is a textual ambiguity in the statute about the extent of uh, covered uh, spoken interpreter services. One could argue it either way, and we don't — I'm happy to proceed under either assumption. Uh, but what, what's clear is that however far it extends within the area of spoken interpretation, document translation is — I, I have to say that if you read it the way you do, then what you're suggesting is that for appointed experts, they only get recompense for the time they're testifying, because that's the only time they spend in court? Court-appointed experts, Your Honor? Well, yes. I think that the, the legislative history of that seems to indicate that that provision was actually — inserted into 1920.6 for a separate housekeeping reason, because it paralleled Rule 706 of the Federal Rules of Evidence, which was a pre-existing rule uh, addressing court-appointed experts, and simply put it into the enumeration. But court experts get, a, get paid for their prep work. Yes, Your Honor. I, I, I think that, th- that that may well be the case. But I, I think that the te- — could, could I — one further question? Of course. Um, I take all your arguments, but I read the Common Dictionary, and there's no question that the primary meaning of interpreter is interpretation of oral languages. But the dictionary is broad enough to include translation work as well. Given that the courts for 70 years have been awarding most of them, except for, I think, the seventh year, Virtually every court over a 70-year period has been awarding translation fees as uh, as authorized. Why shouldn't that be enough for us? Meaning, if the dictionary term is broad enough and that's what the courts have been doing and the world hasn't crashed, despite one case where a large amount was given, your adversary points to the fact that most of the translation fees tend to be fairly reasonable. Why should we muck with what works? Well, Your Honor, I think that — I think I'm drawing drawing from ways that my colleague next to me usually asks a question. (laughs) (laughs) Your Honor, I think that the the primary uh, reason why the Court should should not adopt that is because it's it's inconsistent with the text. It's wrong, is your answer, right? Yes, Your Honor. And and, um, and, and it's also worth noting that the courts — none of the courts of appeals who have adopted this construction of 1920.6 — have, have considered or addressed our primary arguments in this case. They haven't addressed the, uh, the uniform professional literature addressing this, top, this topic, the dictionaries in their aggregate, the uh, administrative office's interpretation of this statute, uh, the consistent congressional distinction between uh, written translation and spoken, uh, spoken commu- uh, interpretation that runs throughout the code. 
So just out of curiosity, why do you think that all these courts just took for granted the opposite reading? Well, Your Honor, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I have a, a good answer to that. I, perhaps that um, they weren't presented with some of these, these arguments and, and didn't have the opportunity to consider them. Perhaps it was Dr. Johnson's answer when a lady pointed out an error in his dictionary, and his answer was stupidity, madam, sheer stupidity. <laughs> well, I think, I think, Your Honor, that, that Camp Pacific disputes very little of, of our central argument. Uh, their discussion of the oh, but there, there are lots of regions of the country, Puerto Rico, for example, where there are vast numbers of documents that have to be translated if you go into federal court, not necessarily in the Commonwealth courts. That's expensive to people. And they might have thought for a long time, while that expense won't go away, it's at least better to have it paid by the loser than to have it paid by the winner. That's been the common practice. I don't think that's a foolish uh, approach. And uh, you can find language in this, which is to go back, to go back to Justice Sotomayor. Well, Your Honor, um, I I think that, um, again, the the best reason to uh, reject that view is because it doesn't make a coherent whole of the statute. These provisions operate together in a uniform set of, of as a uniform set of policies for addressing a common subject. And the way that these provisions interact in broad strokes that make perfect sense on our reading is that in the, in the primary ca- class of cases that motivated the passage of this statute, namely cases brought by the government where there were significant constitutional confrontation clause concerns about criminal defendants not understanding the spoken proceedings, in those core class of cases, the Congress elected to pay for spoken interpreter services directly in the first instance. Now, in the non-core class of cases, private civil litigation, the Congress elected not to pay for these services, but uh, in 1920, parent 6, to facilitate them in the lesser manner of providing that uh, a party that incurred these expenses could recover them at the end of the case if it went. What do you think of the — I mean, the First Circuit went into this, which deals a lot with Puerto Rico. And it felt that, that this fell within the idea of fees for exemplification, which is certifying a document. And, in fact, to certify a document that comes into the federal court in uh, San Juan, you have to have it translated very often. And so the translation cost is at least consistent with the idea there of uh, trying to uh, — you may, you don't have to, you may impose the cost on the loser. Well, Justice Breyer, there was actually a specific provision in this bill, in a prior version of this bill that, that addressed the context of Puerto Rico. And the significance of that provision is that when the Congress was addressing written translation, which was part of the, part of that provision, it specifically used the word translation to refer to that. And this just, uh, again confirms, uh, that the, that the usual congressional practice, uh, of differentiating between these terms in, in statutes generally, uh, was fully applicable here, that the Congress knew the difference between these terms, used them appropriately, and the fact that having removed that, that uh, provision from the statute, the statute as passed contains only the words interpreter and interpretation and no forms of translate, uh, just again re- reaffirms that, uh, that the ordinary meaning of these terms should apply. And what of the document that's, that's read out in open court? And it's a document, a contract in another language, and the interpreter the uh, witness presents the document and the interpreter inter- interprets it. 
Your Honor, the professional literature addresses this as a site interpretation or site translation, and it's uniformly recognized to be a species of interpretation. It occurs uh, the, the interpreter speaks aloud in the presence of the audience being communicated to in the course of a spoken proceeding. Well, what if the, if the interpreter being diligent said, I'm going to have to translate this document in open court. I'd like to have it in advance so I can be sure that my translation is going to be accurate, so that, in fact, the interpreter looks at the document in, 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 in preparation for the trial and translates it. Well, Your Honor, I think that the, the preparatory work that occurred outside of court would not be compensable interpretation work. But when the, when the interpreter returned to court and gave the oral interpretation of that uh, document, that would constitute interpretation. But, well, that, but, but she's not interpreting it. She's already got the thing in uh, whatever language they're English, I guess. But, I mean, she's not interpreting. She's reading the English translation. That's true, Mr. Chief Justice. But the, the key reason why that would constitute interpretation is, is because uh, the, the interpreter is speaking aloud, communicating in the course of a spoken conversation to an audience who, uh, who doesn't speak English or who or — Oh, I misunderstood the hypothetical then. I'm sorry. Well, perhaps I did, Your Honor. I apologize. Um, I thought it was a situation where you've got a, 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 a document in, in say, French, and the person translates it um, or interprets it. I don't want to prejudge the issue. And, and then in, in English, and then the person reads the English thing in, in court. That's not interpretation at any point, is it? Well, Your Honor, I, I think that the, that the literature does typically c- uh, class the in-court oral communication of its content as a, as a form of interpretation. But any ambiguity on this point really, really doesn't, doesn't affect anything in practice. I mean, any site interpretation occurs as a brief interval in a larger procedure. Well, well, is it true that as a matter of common usage, when we are talking about oral testimony in court, uh, we often use interpretation and translation, or interpreter and translator, somewhat interchangeably. But when we're talking about um, rendering a document into a, into a different language, we generally talk about that as translation. This is a matter of common usage. Is, is, do you think that's correct? If I understand Your Honor correctly, yes. I think that the ordinary meaning of, of translate uh, applies to the context of, of the communication of information in written documents. And it's discre- discrete from interpretation, which, uh, which is limited to well, the that well, was my point. That wasn't quite my point. My Sorry. point was that I think we say, in fact, in a Supreme Court case, uh, we've said in the Hernandez case, uh, when we're talking about um, oral testimony in court, we tend to uh, use translator or translate an interpreter or interpret somewhat interchangeably. Is well, that correct? I apologize, Your Honor. Yes, there, you can use the, the word translate generically. There's no question. Frequently in court, and I think out of court as well, that some people can use the word translate in a manner that doesn't differentiate between modes. Our point is that that, that uh, double meaning doesn't apply to interpreter, which has a single narrow meaning limited to spoken communication. And uh, can Pacific's discussion of the dictionaries is limited to a single dictionary, uh, Webster's Third. The majority of dictionaries categorically exclude 
document translation from the scope of the of, of an Webster's third, as I recall, is the dictionary that defines imply to mean infer. It does, Your And right. infer to mean imply. It's not a very good dictionary. <laughs> well, the, the court in the MCI, in the MCI against AT&T case uh, did indicate that. But e- e- even in any event, the uh, — on its terms, that definition supports our reading over <clears throat> Camp Pacific's because it does indicate, even as to that dictionary definition, that the, that the most common meaning uh, of the term is the, the meaning referring to spoken communication. And this Court frequently looks to the most common meaning for purposes of statutory interpretation, as it did in, in Mallard in construing the word request and in Ramsey in construing the word envelope. Can we go back to uh, the issue in the legislative history of this provision? Is there any indication that Congress explicitly rejected uh, translation work from its coverage? Uh, well, the, I, I can talk. There's a, the text does. I, I mean, the, the text of Outside of the text. Is there a statement by um, one of the sponsors in the congressional bill? I'm not sure. I'm sorry. I'm not sure that there's an explicit statement that I'm aware of in the legislative history. There's a lot of provisions in the legislative history which plainly presuppose that. And the Congress received professional uh, literature from uh, documents from the American Association of Language Specialists. Those are the other provisions that they passed with respect to? Well, specifically with respect to costs, the Congress, uh, the House report alludes to um, uh, Rule 43F, which is now 43D, as a relevant pre-existing rule. And, of course, it's undisputed that Rule 43D's cost provision is is limited to spoken communication of interpreters. So there is that in, the, in history as well. Um, but but I think that there's no doubt that uh, in the, under the text of the statute, subsection K, the modes subsection, which appears at page 5A of the red brief appendix as it was initially passed, uh, expressly says that the interpretation under, under this section must be done using methods that all agree are, are limited to spoken communication. Um, now, in, in the so if a lawyer sits down with an interpreter now in his office and says to the interpreter, I can't pay for translation work, now you sit here and interpret what this letter says for me. Is that what we're asking lawyers to do now? Not at all, Your Honor. accept your reading? No, Your Honor. That would not constitute interpreting because it would not uh, — the interpreter would not be communicating between part, live parties in the context of a real-time but you would say that might be different in the court, uh, well, because the lawyer is communicating something live. It, it, it could for, be in the courtroom, but not outside. That, that's correct, Your Honor. Um, is there something logical about this? Uh, yes, Your Honor, because in the courtroom, in the context of a live spoken proceeding, that satisfies all of the ordinary definitional elements of interpreting. But that's not the case in somebody's office in the presence of a single party uh, and a written document. Um, and in the, there's no question, Your Honor, that to the extent there's any ambiguity with respect to unusual uh, examples, this is a distinction that's absolutely clear in the vast majority of real-world incidents. Um, what about depositions? The, the translation would be of the spoken word, but it wouldn't be in court. Um, well, I, I do think that there the — one, one could potentially argue that spoken interpretation at a deposition — isn't covered in light of uh, some of the dictionaries, like, like Black's Law Dictionary, which, uh, which indicates that the word is restricted to, to people who work in trial. 
But I certainly think that it could be argued either way in the case. Well, what, what's your position? Uh, I, I take a deposition uh, in, in, in my law office, and I have, have to have an interpreter there. Is that recoverable or not? I'm not sure we have a definitive. I mean, I, I, I think you could argue it either way, Your Honor. It doesn't affect our case. Um, uh, well, uh, how, how do you think it affects the way you read the statute? What do you think sh- should be the result? Well, well, I think there's a reasonable reading that that should be covered. And I think that that's um, certainly considered. We, we have no vested interest in opposing that. I mean, that, that let, let me ask you this question. In the background here, is there some concern that we're going to have minor cases but with huge translation costs and it would be simply unfair? And if the answer to that is yes, uh, isn't that taken care of by the statutory uh, direction that the Court may give costs? Well, Your Honor, that sort of discretion demonstrably does not prevent the issuance of these large awards, because there have been a number of large awards issued notwithstanding that discretion. Well, isn't that an abuse of discretion? Well, not necessarily, Your Honor. The, the district well, court. I mean, in, in other words, if the, the, the court sees that uh, the uh, cost of preparing documents into an English language is quite substantial in, in light of what's uh, involved in the case, and it's just not fair to, to argue to award them, can't that court, in its discretion, deny that, or, or is that not the way it works? That's the way it works, Your Honor. But it, I don't think that that discretion is sufficient to eliminate the uh, deterrent effect that this Court has recognized in cases like Farmer and Fleischman, because it occurs at the end of the case after a litigant has already uh, decided whether to bring suit. The deterrent effect occurs ex ante when a, when a risk-averse litigant has to decide whether to bring the case. But I, I would just note that, that these sorts of policy questions, Your Honor, arise in the context of language that, by its terms, extends to interpreting and not translating. And we would say that the relevant policy question is simply whether there are sensible reasons to, that Congress may have drawn the line where it did. And plainly, there are adequate reasons that these services, document translation services that were excluded, are, are, are potentially large and fall under the general principles that this Court has recognized uh, are, are presumptively not frequently avoided. Yes, I'm, I'm having a problem with, you know, they're potentially large. Interpretive services are potentially large, although you claim that they that they don't they have sort of a terminus point. Um, I've been in trials where we've had multiple languages simultaneously being translated to multiple defendants with witnesses speaking even other languages. I was in the Southern District of New York, and fees there without translation just for the oral courtroom work sometimes went ahead for months. So potentiality is not the question. If you're talking about disproportionality, then that goes to the word reasonable in the statute, doesn't it? I mean, the ortho case you point to, the Court did sizably cut the translation fees. And more importantly, from the little I can tell, that was a huge patent case with a patent that was claimed to um, uh, control 60 percent of a market. So I, I don't know that that was a small case by anyone's definition. S- certainly, Your Honor. I mean, I, I, as to the difference, I mean, I'm not aware of, of under this statute, an interpreter's uh, spoken interpretation award approaching anywhere near some of the larger document translation awards that have been issued. But nonetheless, there, I'm not denying that there could be large 
interpreter awards in some cases. But the fact is that adding on document translation awards is additive. The sort of necessity review that would be necessary to police these document uh, translation awards would be quite burdensome on the district courts. And, in fact, the necessity standard is, is actually particularly problematic to apply to translations, Your Honor, because the fact is you don't know what a, what a document says until it's been translated. And the exercise of trying to go back and reconstruct ex ante what, what a, whether a person was reasonably necessary in causing to be translated something that they didn't know what it meant is likely to lead to very subjective. Well, I haven't the, 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 I was interested here that the Mikey on your side consists of some professors and the, I guess, the trade association of interpreters or translators. But, but the people who would have the financial stake in it, uh, the defense bar, the plaintiff's bar in some circumstances, have not filed any brief. And, and I tend, though not putting a lot of weight on it, to take it as a sign along with a long period of time that there hasn't been some tremendous financial problem. What, what evidence is there that there has been? I, a few cases, but in general. Your Honor, I'm not at all suggesting that there's been a tremendous financial strain on the system. Uh, we're saying that, that, that this is a statute that, by its plain language, extends to — As a plain language argument I got, but how, how many years has the great bulk of the Court been going the other way? I'm sorry, Your Honor, I actually — I didn't hear the end of your question. How many years has the — would you say the great bulk of the federal system been deciding this differently from the way you think it should be? I, I'm not sure that it's the great bulk. I mean, there's been a significant — uh, disagreement. That's the bulk. <laughs> uh, well, I think it's. I think that it's uh, increased over time. Uh, as yeah, well, when did all this rot set in? <laughs> well, in your opinion, how long? I'm not sure that I could pinpoint a date, Your Honor. What's the first one? <laughs> Your Honor, I'm not sure. I'll, I'll have to find out while, while my oh. adversaries are arguing what the first decision was. Um, back as nine, it was a district court, but it was as far back as the 1930s. Oh, well, well, some in the 40s, some in the 50s. Well, certainly it wasn't construing 1920 per 6 at that time, Your Honor. No, no, clearly, but its um, awards have been common. Uh, Your Honor, I, I you have a case cited from 1812, I take it. That didn't. <laughs> certainly, Your Honor. Um, addressing. I, I, thought we're, I thought we're addressing not whether it's a good idea to give fees, but whether fees are payable under this particular statute, right? Which was enacted when? 1978, Your Honor. 1978. And it's not so long ago. Absolutely correct, Your Honor. We, we agree. And and the structural reasons are, are within within the Court Interpreters <clears throat> Act itself are every bit as powerful as the ordinary textual indicia that that support our reading. And in fact, Can Pacific's uh, argument that uh, the word interpreters should be assigned different meanings in different parts of the statute uh, is is, is unsupported. Uh, Can Pacific relies on what it characterizes as different language in, in Section 2, which put in 1827 and 1828, and Section 7, which put in the cost provision. And it notes that Section 2 sometimes uses the broader phrase interpreters in courts of the United States, whereas Section 7 uses the word interpreters alone. But Can Pacific doesn't examine the context in which Section 2 does and does not use that broader phrase. And those specifics really undermine any argument I might make along these lines. Uh, as originally passed in, in Section 2, 1827 contains 26 occurrences of the word interpreter, not counting the title. And of those 26 uses, 24 simply use the word interpreter by itself. 
so there's certainly at the very threshold no overarching pattern of usage distinction between them. More fundamentally, though, the, um, the substantive provisions addressing the use of interpreters by parties in these cases in 1827 do so without using that broader phrase. Subsection D. Do so without? without I'm sorry, Your Honor, without using the broader phrase in courts of the United States. Um, subsection D is the provision that, that governs the use of interpreters in cases brought by the government. This appears at page 2A of the Red Brief Appendix. And it simply provides that upon a determination of need, the services of an interpreter will be used uh, in these cases. Uh, the only two provisions that use the phrase interpreters in courts of the United States are subsections A and B, which are both at 1A of the Red Brief Appendix. And both of these provisions simply are addressing the scope of the administrative office's duties under the statute. And as such, it simply makes clear that in keeping with the office's ordinary functions, it's, uh, it, it's facilitating the work of the federal courts and making clear that the office isn't, for instance, inter- uh, certifying interpreters for the state courts. So nothing in this language suggests in any way that, um, the, uh, that the word interpreter means something different in different places or that the, the, or that the services of an interpreter are, are viewed as, um, as embracing the same thing. So we, we think that a variety of indicia of meaning uh, converge in this case to support the conclusion that 1920 six is limited to spoken communication. If there are no further questions, I'll reserve the balance of time. Thank you, Mr. Freed. Mr. Himmelfarb. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The word interpreter has two possible meanings that are relevant here, a broader one and a narrower one. The broader meaning is a person who translates from one language to another. Under this definition, the terms interpreter and translator are used interchangeably. Have you ever seen a book, uh, you know, translated from a foreign language, uh, you know, uh, War and Peace, you know, and and you're at the mercy of of what we call the translator, and it it says on on the fly page, you know, John Smith, comma, Trans period. Does it ever say John Smith, comma, int period? It's used in the narrower sense in that context, I think, Justice Scalia. The narrower meaning of interpreter is a member of a profession that specializes in oral translation, and in that narrower sense, an interpreter is distinct from a translator, which is the sense you've just identified, which is a person who specializes in written translation. Our submission is that, as the great majority of courts who have expressed a view on this question have recognized, the broader definition makes more sense, uh, more sense in the particular context at issue here. And we say that for a number of reasons. The first is that the basic purpose of translation in the litigation context is to make evidence intelligible to the parties in the court. Section 1920 reflects a congressional judgment that the cost of making evidence intelligible to the parties in the court can be borne by the losing party. No, it, doesn't. It, it, it reflects that judgment only if you're right that interpreter means translator. Well, I mean, you're begging the question. Uh, you, you, you could say that the one should embrace the other, but whether Congress thought that or not is mostly dependent on the language Congress well, used, isn't it? Let me be as clear as I possibly can. I'm obviously not standing here saying we lose under the language, but it would be a good idea for the statute to cover written translation. That's not a legitimate enterprise for a court interpreting a statute. 
What I'm saying is that the text of the statute bears two, permissibly bears two possible meanings. That being the case, it is a legitimate enterprise for the Court to say which makes sense, which is it most likely that Congress would have intended in this particular context. Why does your interpretation make sense? Uh, Shouldn't we view this against the backdrop of the American rule on fees, that each party generally bears its own costs, and uh, only in specific circumstances does the, the loser pay? Now, the taxation of costs is a very narrow concept. What is the difference between a case in which a lot of documents have to be rendered from one language to another prior to the court proceeding and a case in which there's a mass of scientific evidence that has to be uh, interpreted by a scientist or financial evidence that has to be interpreted by uh, an accountant. In those instances, the the losing party doesn't pay for uh, the, the, the winner's expenses, does it? Well, let me, let me address the first part of your question first, which is, essentially, as I understand it, isn't there a background principle that says costs don't get taxed? I actually think, insofar as tax, uh, costs are concerned, as distinct from attorney's fees, the background principle actually goes the other well, the way. Background, costs get taxed, but costs are very narrow. As, they are a very small part of the expenses of a party litigating a case. Isn't that, isn't that true? I think ordinarily that's true, but I don't think that it, it, follows, it, it follows in any way that there is some sort of tie-breaking interpretive canon that says when you're interpreting the cost statute, some version of which has been in effect since the middle of the 19th century, if you're unsure about the scope of it, that you err on the side of narrowness rather than breadth. I just don't think there's any such interpretive principle. Well, aren't you asking for an interpretive principle that errs on the side of breadth rather than narrowness? No, we don't. Why don't we just ask ourselves, what's the most common, what's the best reading? Well, I think you obviously have to start there in this case as you do in any statutory case. And our submission is that you have two possible Ordinary definitions, you have two possible common usages. But the dictionaries themselves tell us that one usage is far more common than the other. I I mean, I guess I just have to dispute that. Um, We have Webster's, which, you know, Justice Scalia's view notwithstanding is viewed by many people as an authoritative uh, dictionary of English language. We've got Black's Law Dictionary, which I think everyone agrees is the leading law dictionary, which in, uh, provides as a definition of interpreter the broad definition that we advocate here, to be sure. Well, I guess Black's Law Dictionary, uh, which uh, uh, the editor of it is a, is a uh, co-author with me, so I, I feel obliged to spring to his defense. <laughs> uh, since it is a law dictionary, presumably it ought to have taken into account the cases you're referring to. Uh, many of which uh, use the word in, in, in this sense, right? That's so, true. Blame Garner. That's absolutely true. And just as a dictionary, a law dictionary, will take those cases into account, I think it's ordinarily presumed that Congress is taking into account the cases, too, and it's taking into account dictionary definitions as well. One, one of the things that concerns me is the impact of, of cost allowance on the normal litigation incentives. An interpreter in court is one thing. When you suddenly get a situation where the cost could be quite large, 
particularly in a, in a disparate way, not necessarily shared by both sides. Somebody goes into court, they know, they know they're going to have to, if they lose, they'll have to pay an interpreter this, and the other side comes in and says, well, we think we need to submit this 10,000 pages of, uh, of uh, documents, which will have to be translated, and by the way, if you lose, you're going to pay for that. In other words, it, it is a much more variable element of costs than the interpreter. I'm, I'm not sure that's true. I think in large litigations where you have many, many days of trial and potentially pretrial proceedings, you could have very large oral translation costs. Where there are many depositions, you could have large oral translation costs. But even if I were to accept the premise of your question, it seems to me that the way these costs get controlled is through the exercise of district courts' discretion not to tax Every — the cost of translating every document, the Fifth Circuit, which is one of — So what — so what goes into the exercise of that discretion? Well, typically the criteria for, for — I should add, the, the criteria for taxing costs um, of every sort, not just uh, interpreter costs and not just document translation costs, are essentially thought to be necessity and reasonableness. So in connection with document translation costs, the Fifth Circuit has suggested that the way to tax them, the appropriate way to tax them, might be just to tax the cost of translating headings of foreign language documents, which should be sufficient to let the lawyer uh, know whether this is a relevant document that might bear further translation, and then only the documents that really turned out, based on the translation of the heading, to have some significance to the case. So that's just one example of the way the discretion gets exercised. Mr. Himmelfarb, in Section 1920, there are two provisions that specify uh, costs necessarily obtained for use in the case. And the interpreter provision doesn't have that qualification. Doesn't say necessarily obtained for use in the case. That's that's true. For but for you, you are asking to read interpreter me, to mean translator as well, and to import into uh, sub six necessary for use in the case. The necessity limitation in subsection six, as with other subsections that don't specifically use the word necessarily come not from that term, but rather from the word may uh, in the first sentence of the provision, which, in tandem with Rule 54 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure, essentially make this a, disc- a discretionary call for the district court. Necessity has long been recognized as one of the components of that discretionary determination. The reason we say it doesn't make sense to have the narrower definition of interpreter be the one that uh, Congress enacted, is that uh, written document translation can be and often is every bit as important as oral translation. In many cases, it could be more important in a contract case, for example. What what do you think on the difference? I guess nobody wants to defend this argument, including you. But the First Circuit and several others did look to the provision which permits the taxing of costs for the making of, it says, exemplification of your official documents, for the, for the cost of making copies of any materials obtained for use in the case. 
Now, if you're going to make a copy for use of a case of something in Japanese, you're going to have to turn it into English. So they included that as part of the cost of making copies of a material of a document for use in the case, now, which is discretionary as to whether you do or whether you don't. But that's how several courts did read it. I'm just wondering, uh, is that didn't strike me so obviously wrong. Maybe it's obviously wrong. Well, I, I mean, I suppose it goes without saying that we'd rather win under subsection 4 than lose under subsection 6. There I'm are sure some you'd like to win on any subsection. That's true, absolutely true. There are some courts that have suggested um, that document translation fits under subsection 4. I think those that have done so have tended to do it tended to do it before Section 6 was added in 1978. We haven't. Right, so the history is that prior to 78, a serious number, some number of circuits said you can get the translation paid for under, as, as being necessary to create a copy that's usable in court. All right. Then Congress passes this knowing of those cases in principle. And then there is a shift after Congress passes this and then the majority of courts say, all right, this is the provision that permits it. Is that an accurate statement? I of think that is accurate. Be- before 1978, some of the courts that tax document translation costs, mm-hmm. I believe, also relied on their inherent authority, which at the time was thought to be a permissible ground. Is, inher- is there anything in the history of the 78 statute which suggested that Congress didn't want these taxed? Absolutely not. There's, there's frankly nothing in the legislative history of the Court Interpreters Act really that bears on this issue one way or another. There's a lot of legislative history on which uh, petitioner relies, but it's all addressed to Section 2, which is a separate provision which deals with a separate subject, which is the appointment of interpreters in cases initiated by the United States. So if there's no legislative history, there's no legislative history on the other side either, right, saying that we we mean this. Oh, that's right. So, absent legislative history, I guess we have to rely on the words of the statute, right? It means you don't have to look at the (laughs) statute. I guess I just go back to where I started, which is that we think under dictionary definitions, and under common usage, there are two permissible meanings of interpreter. Well, there are two — there may be two permissible, but you don't dispute the fact that it is more natural and common to speak of someone interpreting oral communication and someone translating written, correct? I don't — I I think I would dispute it. I don't know whether one is more common than the other — in any meaningful way. It may be slightly more common to use it in its narrower sense to refer to a member of a profession, but it's certainly common enough that you have district judges from all over the country in written opinion just sort of -of matter-of-factly talking about the people who translate documents as interpreters. Well, how about in the U.S. Code? Is there any uh, place in the U.S. Code where the word interpreters clearly encompasses written translators? I'm not aware of any. There aren't — There, I, I frankly don't think there are that many places in the United States Code where the term interpreter is used other than in its sort of obvious, narrow sense based on the context of the statute. So, for example, a number of statutes talk about funding 
uh, translators and interpreters who are not citizens of the United States. It seems to us that in that context, what Congress is getting at is the interpreter and translator in the narrower sense of members of a profession. So in every other case in which the U.S. Code uses the word, interpreters means only oral translators. And that's the obvious way to use the word. But in this case, we're supposed to reach a different conclusion. Justice Kagan, I would say this. In every other provision of the United States Code in which the the word interpreter is used, either it's not clear whether it includes document translation or the context is such that it strongly indicates that it's limited to oral translation. And neither of those situations obtains here in our view. And just to phrase your answer a different way, you don't know of any situation in U.S. Code where translators um, or interpreter means translator. I'm not aware of any other provision in the United States. And you checked every one, so there is none, right? (laughs) There's none where it is clear that it covers uh, document translation. There There are state statutes, which we've cited, which use the term interpreter to, to, to clearly cover document translation, and we cite them in our brief. I, I, somebody did a computer search in a database of, let's say, newspaper articles, magazine articles, for use of the term interpreter in relationship to a foreign language. And let's say you look at a 1,000 hits. How many of those do you think would use the term interpreter to refer to rendering a written document from one language to another? I think it may, I, I would not be at all surprised if it was more than 50 percent of the hits that used it in, in its narrower sense. You're like daring Justice Alito to go do this now. <laughs> <laughs> How, however, the, How much would you bet? <laughs> if you bet me enough, I'll look at a thousand. I'd be surprised if it's two percent. I, I couldn't venture a guess, and I'd rather not bet you. Um, I, I do want to say something about the, the, the concept of sight translation, which is something that my friend Mr. Freed adverted to. Sight translation is a hybrid endeavor. It is uh, the oral translation of written documents. One of the reasons we think that the broader meaning of interpreter makes more sense in Section 1920 is that it can't really account in any sensible way for sight translation. Um, in this case, for example, uh, can, our counsel, Camp Pacific's counsel, took Taniguchi's deposition, and to prepare for the deposition, he reviewed, he had to review some contracts which were written in Japanese and some medical records which were written in Japanese. Now, under our view, uh, having those documents translated in writing to prepare for the deposition would result in a potentially taxable cost. Under Taniguchi's view, they wouldn't. But it sounds like under either party's view, if instead of handing those documents off to a document translator to have them translated in writing, he had sat down in his law office with a member of the interpreter profession and said, here's a box of documents, please tell me what they say, that would be a potentially taxable cost. That seems to me to be a very odd result. And one and it's an odd result because nobody's going to do it, because at that point you don't know who's going to get saddled with the costs. So it wouldn't be likely that you would do something that would increase the costs, would it? 
Well, I don't know that it would increase the cost. It may be cheaper to use an oral translator, uh, an oral translator, as opposed to a written document translator. And there might be a variety of reasons why you would choose to use one or another, time constraints, the importance of the particular document, what have you. But I don't think that it's likely that Congress would have thought that the potential taxability of the translation is it, is it clear? Does anybody contend, does the other side contend, that the use of a viva voce translation outside of court is covered by the meaning of interpreter here. I assume that the interpretation here meant interpretation in the oral proceeding that is the trial. And uh, you're, you're saying that if we hold against you, in interpretation will still include all oral translations outside of the trial. Well, I think every court that's ever thought about this has found that Deposition, oral translation at deposition. Oh, at, at deposition, which I consider part of the part of the trial process, but not not in the in the lawyer's office, where he asks somebody to sit down and, and and read this document to me. Well, there's not. I don't see any basis in the statute, or frankly, in the practice of translators or interpreters for draw, drawing that line in that particular place. And as far as the question where Taniguchi would have the court, court draw it is concerned. I think that's a very hard question to answer because he's moved back and forth so many times on that. His briefs offer several different, uh, several different narrow definitions of interpreter, sometimes saying it's the oral translation of oral speech, sometimes saying it's the oral translation of any language, whether it's oral or written, sometimes saying it's limited to in-court interpretation, sometimes it's say, saying it's not. That, it seems to us, is a very good reason for adopting the broader interpretation. It seems very unlikely that Congress would want courts to get into these extremely complicated and, frankly, unprincipled uh, line drawing. Well, I, I don't know, Mr. Himmelfarb. I mean, why is this any, any different from any case in which we draw a line and we find that the result of drawing a line is that we've created some close cases, cases that are near the line? So, you know, just to give you an obvious example, the fact that there are some few minutes in every 24-hour period where it's hard to say that something is night or day does not mean that there's not night and that there's not day. And that seems to me what the question is here. Yeah, you can think up some hard cases, but they're just that. They're marginal cases. Well, I think I think line drawing is sometimes a necessary exercise because the text of the statute compels you to do it. Our submission is that the text of this statute doesn't compel it because you've got a readily available alternative interpretation which doesn't require any sorts of these line drawings. And as far as whether this is sort of a, a, an outlying, the examples I give are outlying oddball circumstances goes, I don't think they are. Sight translation, for example, is a core function of interpreters and translators alike. And uh, I guess the only other point I would say, make about sight translation, um, my friend Mr. Freed suggested that, that that is something that could only be covered if it takes place during the course of live proceedings, which I think is, is yet another narrowing uh, of the word interpreter. But as far as I'm aware, most site translation does not, little if any site translation actually occurs during the course. Right, I, accept, I accept the following, 
that there was a history about basically giving money, doing what you want before the statute, that the statute nobody thought what was going to do with that history, that that statute is capable of being translated, but that isn't the most natural thing. And so the question is, do we take, go with a smaller capability saying leave, leave well enough alone, or do we say, gee, that's just too hard to translate it that, to uh, interpret the statute that way? Have you got any other example in the law? I mean, can you think of an example in the law, which I've been trying to think of, where there was a history of doing something? A statute comes along that makes it a little tougher for the judges to do it. And then the court says either, sorry, too tough now, or it says, let sleeping dogs lie. Well, I think, I mean, I think it's an important point. Um, And this goes to the question of, you know, whether it's difficult for district courts to make a determination of whether particular document translation should be taxed, which is one of the arguments on the other side. I think the, the history of this is strong evidence that it's not difficult. Courts have been doing this certainly since 1978 when this provision was added and even before then, and they haven't had any evident difficulty in deciding whether to tax documents and if uh, document translation, and if so, how much. So I think that the, the history certainly bears on the case in that respect. Um, a word. Can you think of an example where words are not on their face plain and the court has looked to the practices that have been imbued into that word and said, and we've decided that they will be accepted in the way that practice has given them meaning? I I can't think of any case off the top of my head, and I think it's true that this case is a little bit different because insofar as courts were taxing document translation costs before 1978, they were relying on something other than the word interpreter. So it may be a stretch to say that when Congress chose to use the word interpreter, it was necessarily incorporating what courts had previously done. But I don't think it's entirely irrelevant that this has been done for a long time, and I think it's not unfair to presume that Congress would have been aware of that. Um, The the Court Interpreters Act has two main provisions as relevant here. There's Section 2, which is really the the more — the the main provision, and then — Section 7, which became 1920 subsection 6 in Title 28, which is the provision at issue here. Uh, an important part of Taniguchi's submission is that Section 2 is limited to oral translators, and therefore it should follow that Section 7, the provision at issue here, is likewise limited to uh, oral translators. And our main submission on that on that question is that Congress actually used different language in Section 2 and Section 7. Section 2 added two provisions to Title 28, Section 1827 and Section 1828, which are titled and which address, respectively, interpreters in courts of the United States and special interpretation services. In Section 7, which added subsection 6 to 19. 20. Congress does not use those two phrases. Instead, it uses the phrase interpreters 
simply, not interpreters in courts of the United States, and then special interpretation services. So to the extent that there is any appropriate canon about the use of similar or different language in different provisions of a statute, it seems to us that the appropriate canon is that one should presume that when Congress uses different language, it intends different meanings. I do want to respond to uh, Mr. Freed's point about the number of times the word interpreter is used in Section 2. And as I understand his point is that it's that it's much more frequently used by itself than it is with the, with the words in courts of the United States. What the statute actually does is uh, add, say that it's adding Section 1827, which it calls interpreters in courts of the United States. It then has a subsection that says that the administrative office of the United States courts has to establish a program to facilitate the use of interpreters in courts of the United States. Where, where are you reading from? I'm sorry. This is um, the red brief 1A, the appendix, which is the very beginning of the Court Interpreters Act. Mm-hmm. And then there's subsection C, flipping over to the next page. I'm, I'm sorry, subsection B, which says that the director has to certify interpreters in courts of the United States. So what it does at the beginning of the statute is establish this thing called a certified interpreter in courts of the United States. When it thereafter speaks of interpreters simply, that's just a shorthand for a certified interpreter in courts of the United States. So it seems to us that as far as the Court Interpreters Act is concerned, even if it's true that Section 2 uses the term in the narrower sense, it doesn't necessarily follow that it's used in the narrower sense in Section 7. And the only point I would add about that, um, as we point out in our brief, it's really not clear that Section 2 is limited to oral translators. Soon after uh, the Court Interpreters Act was enacted and for approximately 16 years thereafter, the administrative office would publish these notices in the Federal Register uh, uh, notifying the public that there were going to be certification exams for interpreters under Section 2 of the Court Interpreters Act. These were pretty streamlined notices, uh, not long at all, and one of the main aspects, the main sections of the notice was a list of what the Director of the Administrative Office said were the, were the duties of interpreters in courts of the United States. And to be sure, it listed uh, simultaneous and consecutive interpreting, but it, it listed site translation and it listed document translation. So at a minimum, Section 2 is not sufficiently clearly limited to oral translators that the Director of the administrative office couldn't issue these notices saying otherwise. Um, I guess the, the, the last point uh, I, I, I want to make about other statutes, some of which use the term interpreter and translator together, um, I've already addressed that um, in part by saying that in many of those statutes, it really is pretty clearly used in the narrower sense because you're talking about members of a profession. The, the only other thing I would say about that is that the, the premise of Taniguchi's reliance on those statutes seems to be that it would be 
strangely redundant for Congress to speak in other statutes about interpreters and translators together if, in fact, the two terms could be used interchangeably and that redundancy should be avoided. But subsection 6 of 1920 itself has a redundancy in it because it covers both interpreters and special interpretation services. And I don't think anybody could dispute that anyone who carries out a special interpretation service is an interpreter. So it's not at all odd to have redundancy when Congress is addressing the subject of translation. Thank you, Counsel. Uh, Mr. Freed, you have five minutes remaining. Very briefly, Your Honor, three points. In the first place, Justice Breyer, I just wanted to uh, let you know that the first decision, in constru- the first appellate decision construing uh, 1920 Paren 6 to encompass document translation was the D.C. Circuit's decision in the Quay in 1981. Um, second, Mr. Himmelfarb noted that uh, Black's Law Dictionary def- takes uh, a definition that arguably could encompass uh, document translation. But he didn't mention that the, oper- that the operative version of blacks in 1978, when this statute was passed, was, was, did not in- was a different definition that excluded document translation. And the, this change in the definition occurred in 1999 in the seventh edition, after a number of these judicial decisions construing 1920 Paren 6 had already come down, which supports Your Honor's observation that it could very well merely reflect a recognition of these decisions rather than independent support for them. Finally, Your Honors, um, Mr. Himmelfarb cited certain notices issued by the administrative office from many years ago. These brief notices were ministerial documents that simply announced a forthcoming examination. The office has issued the Guide to Judiciary Policy, which is the, which is the fully uh, expressed views on this issue and is posted on the office's website. It's current as of June 9, 2011, and expressly provides that document translation is not a part of the statutory services of an interpreter. If there are further questions, I'd be happy to address them. Thank you, counsel. The case is submitted.